the requests, a, a specific song that you find really, really hits the needs for audio check. What's a good CQI song? Well, I don't know that this answer is appropriate, but the first song that came to mind was Push It. Like push it real good, like push the boundaries of what you're doing to see if you could do it well. But I don't think that's the context that normally comes with that song, so. This is a risky internet search. It really is. I think it's salt and pepper. It is salt and pepper. <laughs>
And, you know, kind of more of an explain it like I'm five way, Lauren, like, what do you think of when someone says continuous quality improvement or continuous learning and improvement? What comes to mind for you as the basic general first level definition or explanation of that? Continuous quality improvement is just when you have a problem and you don't know the solution, what are some steps you can take to walk through a process to solve that problem in a more effective way? And you could challenge me because if I say effective to a five-year-old, that that might not jive with every five-year-old. <laughs> but that I think that is the simplest form of understanding what um, continuous quality improvement is. Yeah, and and to me, this is where again I draw this analog between project management and continuous quality improvement because I think they share some things. Like for example, they're a mixture of art and science. Let's start there. There's you know. And when I say a mixture, I really mean that you can't just let go of the process. And in, in one of the things I feel like is a big challenge when you're trying to do continuous quality improvement is adhering even to a simple process, having the discipline to follow the steps and take a learning to know how to generate an insight, to right size the amount of time you're spending in the different phases or stages of the process you're working with then. So, which leads me kind of to my, uh, like I said, a few other questions. One, so where do you see the role of process fitting in with continuous quality improvement work and where, and, and how do you see time? Like those are two components of continuous quality improvement that I'm always interested in is where does process fit in? And then how do you right size cycles of time you're spending on finding a solution? Well, I think that's the beauty of, of the framework as I know it. And, and I want to acknowledge that I think there's different approaches to the cycles and the steps and the tools that folks use. And I don't think it's a one size fit all. There is one right way. I think it's the essence that is most meaningful for people to think about and consider using. And so to your question, one thing that I think is most important is as people are beginning to identify a problem, they're starting to understand, oh, something needs my attention. Something's not going according to plan. Very seldom is there one problem that comes at a time. You know, most organizations, they've got a lot of different things that aren't going as expected. They were hoping for greater return on this. They were hoping to serve more clients over here. And so just starting with the initial phase of the cycle where it's really taking time to reflect, well, what do I think is the problem and how do I know this is a problem? Um, if I'm starting to say, this is what I hoped would happen and this is what is actually happening, just taking the time to say, and how do I know that's a problem? Is it just from my perspective that it's a problem? Is it from my team? Is it from the community? That in and of itself is a starting place for thinking through, well, it, um, this is the beginning of a process to make sure that I'm devoting my time to something that's worthy. If I have to prioritize which problem I'm going to address first, I'm starting to think about, well, who's burdened by this if I don't address it now? Who's burdened by it if I do address it now? And thinking through those things. And I think that's a starting place for understanding how you utilize time and what processes will be needed by beginning to really understand, do I have a problem? How large is this problem? What happens if I don't solve this problem now? When does it have to be solved by in order for, for it to be most meaningful? to the folks I'm serving. That makes sense. And do you have any specific frameworks that you find yourself going back to over and over again that you prefer over others? Impact Tulsa uses an eight-step framework that really starts with identifying a variance and then thinking about forming a team. If I'm going to be addressing this problem, who's impacted by this, both about maybe potentially who is part of the process itself and who is part of the outcome of the process? And then moving into a phase where you begin to think about, do I need to narrow this problem down a little bit more? Because I think one thing that is just naturally gets in our way is we have big problems. And so we try to address big problems. And it's really like, well, let's, let's disaggregate data and understand this a little bit more. Is this problem only occurring in certain spaces, in certain circumstances? Is it more of a problem for some people than others? And then with the rest of our framework, the fourth step is really determining an underlying cause. And so if I, if I de-jargon that, that's just doing a root cause analysis. Let's understand what factors are causing this problem to occur in this context with these people, with given circumstances. 
And once you've done that, then it's time to start developing solutions, brainstorming ideas about what potentially could make these factors not lead to this problem. And then ultimately, the, the remaining steps are really about testing those solutions. And so what I like about that framework is throughout the entire framework, there's opportunity for multiple perspectives to inform every step of the way from validating that it is indeed a problem to validating that this solution did indeed make a change and that that change is an improvement. It can be a little difficult to nail down the specific origins of something like CQI, which is an ever-evolving framework that a lot of folks have contributed to over time. But two folks in particular, Walter Schuhart and W. Edwards Deming, are often credited as the framework's original creators. So Schuhart came first and had created a scientific method for process improvement that involved three core steps— specification, production, and inspection. Deming came along and advanced this model and turned it into the more accessible and potentially familiar four-step process, plan, do, study, act. Though originally it was plan, do, check, act. And there are at least four other major models that are used depending on the sector that you're working in. Lauren mentioned that Impact Tulsa uses an eight-step framework. So the bottom line is CQI gives us a really great blueprint for creating improvement processes, but there is more than one way to bake a cake. We talk a lot about technology and how it benefits folks, you know, in the nonprofit space. And it's very centered around the work that we're all doing. But CQI or continuous learning and improvement, like that is something that can expand across your professional experience, your personal experience. And so I would love to know just any anywhere, pick from any part of your life, you know, what's a creative, where have you applied CQI in a way that maybe was unexpected or uh, folks wouldn't typically think of? So I, I like that question because I think it shows the range of how you can use CQI. I think one way that's not necessarily surprising, but I want to create space for is thinking about continuous improvement as a mechanism for creating change for solutions that are needed in the community that that just aren't, it's like, how do we tackle this? This is so huge. This is so complex. Where do we even start? Um, and so thinking about things that, that are really relevant in our community right now, such as chronic absenteeism how we use CQI and technology and fuse those things together to address something so complex that has multiple root causes. That's where I just feel alive and understanding what CQI could be. But as you said, it can be used in really personal and kind of situations where people are thinking about, what am I Am I living up to my own expectations? I wear different hats. And so am I giving the time and attention to the people and the, and the communities in, in my life in the way that I want? So it can even be just as simple as stepping back and ask, using some of the key questions from process improvement to help you understand where is there disconnect between what I hope is happening and what is actually happening? And how do I slow myself down enough to understand, well, why is that the case? Why is that difference unfolding? And so I think sometimes it, it's jargony and it feels technical and it feels like one, just one more framework, but it actually is just a tool to help us sit back and reflect, get other people's perspectives about what's going on and make sense of that to test out solutions and say, let me just try this thing. Let me try this for 30 days and see if this makes a difference. So even if it's, um, I want to exercise more, I'm trying to do 10,000 steps every day at a minimum. And I've noticed patterns about when that's happening or when that's not. So just using some of the thinking and the logic has helped me step back and be like, oh, now I, I see what's happening. Let me, let me try this different thing. Let me try doing it every morning instead of waiting until after work and see if that makes us, um, sense. Love that. Yeah. And I feel called out. That's a good example. <laughs> I too aspire to do more we exercise. We can improve together. Jess, we can improve together. <laughs> I love that. And we'll, we'll, we need tech to help us capture the data about what's working well with that club and what's not. And is there like concrete example or set of examples that you can give on how that process has been applied to either combat you know, a challenge in the community or solve a problem? We're really fortunate to be able to partner with a lot of folks who are interested in improvement in general. And so that's a framework that we use in our collaborative spaces. 
And so this framework has been used to think about chronic absenteeism. It's been used to think about accessibility to SNAP as a benefit. It's been used to think about how effective are, are we training our, the coaches that are going to classrooms and working with teachers. It's been used to identify how do I co-develop a program that's focused on financial empowerment to ensure that we are creating a program that not only meets needs, but is designed in a way that elicits more folks to be able to successfully complete, complete the program. I think chronic absenteeism is a perfect example of something that is uh, it's relevant locally here in Tulsa. It's relevant nationally in practically every community, it seems like. That's looking at the big issues in student outcomes, especially longitudinally over time. And it's one of those wicked problems. It's hard to define. It's, you know, even if you have a school system and or a lit review that shows a standard from a research perspective, then testing interventions, it, it just checks a lot of the wicked problem boxes about being locally sensitive, even though it's generalizable nationally. We talk about this concept a lot. It's an important one. And if it's unfamiliar to you, Wicked Problems refers to a concept that was introduced by a design expert and an urban planning professor in the 70s to refer to really complicated societal challenges. Challenges that don't have clear solutions. It's difficult or even impossible to test potential solutions, and they're often deeply interrelated with a number of different issues. So common examples of wicked problems are things like poverty, hunger, environmental sustainability. It's tough to pin down. They show up differently in every community, and they benefit most from being approached with a CQI mentality of improving over solving. And I love that idea of being able to both understand the macro level view, but then get really detailed down at the data level to get insight into the micro level view as well. And then that then together forms a better, I think more comprehensive plan on how you can move forward and test interventions. I think so too. And, and thinking about testing interventions and how data is used there, I think that's a step that, without intentionality, we naturally skip. We'll have tried out this solution, and then we look and we're like, yes, change occurred. It worked. Let's do this at everywhere. Let's do that at every office location, every school district. But what's missing is going back and asking, hey, when we did this thing, did this make a difference for you? Did that lead to your change in behavior? So you're double-checking that there is that connection because continuous improvement is not up to the same standard as, as academic research to be able to think about causality. And so the way that we compensate for that is going through and double checking. This is the change that you think happened. Go ask the folks who are impacted by that solution, get their feedback. Was that indeed part of the reason for that change? And so I think data is such a valuable step throughout the entire process in ways that sometimes are very obvious to folks and in ways that are new to folks. So you know, we've talked about the, you know, complementary nature of either academic style research where you need that level of precision and the utility of continuous improvement. I'm curious if you've run into scenarios where somebody's really excited about using CQI tools and it's not a good fit. So, so really the question for you is when is, you know, continuous improvement not a good fit? Maybe you know, outside of some of the more probably obvious go-tos like, you know, testing a new drug on the market to make sure that it's ready for public, you know, consumption and things like that. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, like, have you run into that kind of scenario where somebody, you know, think, oh, this is the answer to everything. Let's just, let's run this through and, and maybe it's not a good fit. And hopefully that's a, that's a clear question. So let me know if I can elaborate. No, that's a very clear question. It, it's just a hard question. I don't think that continuous improvement is the answer to all problem solving or process improvement. But I do think there are aspects of continuous improvement that could be applicable to any kind of problem solving. So there are times where I would not recommend walking through this cycle because sometimes you're working in a crisis and you, and you don't have the opportunity to fully do all those steps. But there's still the reflection pieces and thinking about it through an equity lens and using community authority that I think are relevant in any situation. But just the context of who is your community, what is your timeline, that might be what plays out a little bit differently. 
So when Lauren is talking about community authority, she's talking about a concept used by a lot of social impact organizations to put power back in the hands of community members and leaders. So organizations have connections to a community and have resources to provide support for those who need it. Those community problems are ever evolving and deeply contextual. So the folks that know a community best are the folks who live in it, and their knowledge around their needs should take precedence over an organization's outside understanding of what's, quote, best. I think that no matter what problem, there are elements that you can pull that would be effective. It's just not the cycle. Do Fully doing the cycle is not going to work in every circumstance. So Lauren, you talked about these, you know, the importance of bringing in multiple perspectives and you yourself have many perspectives that you bring into the work that you do, right? As an academic yourself, as somebody who's working very closely with the community, as a program manager, facilitator, you have all these different perspectives. And I'm curious, have you seen where if you're engaged in continuous improvement work, how different perspectives or lenses that you're coming through or coming from affect how you engage in these types of initiatives, but from a broad perspective? And then how has that affected or how have you seen your perspective change in terms of how you approach CI work, just knowing that you wear a lot of different hats? My experiences have lent themselves towards seeing data be used as a tool for good. And so if you tell me we're going to focus on making a data-driven decision to make it to do something better for the community. That's something that appeals to me and, and makes me want to show up. But what I know is that's not everybody's circumstance. That's not everybody's experience. So if you say data-driven decision-making to someone else, that can be off-putting for a variety of reasons. Some folks feel intimidated by data. I feel intimidated by data, and I use data a lot, and I still feel intimidated. But sometimes that intimidation can make someone back off or not engage in the conversation because they don't feel equipped to. Sometimes folks back away from data because they've seen data be used to harm them. It's been weaponized. And so when you say data-driven decision-making, that's not a rally to, I want to show up. It's like, no, thank you. I've seen that gone awry. So even that perspective that folks bring around what is the value of data di- data-driven decision-making, that in and of itself um, can impact how team members show up and, and share and make sense of the information in front of them. You know, that was highlighted in a, I I had a a call earlier today with an amazingly innovative organization focused in the Midwest on helping nonprofits secure loans and with real estate development and, you know, and economic indicators. And I was very impressed with the way that they'd structured their approach to innovation which is a really easy thing to get wrong. It's hard to innovate. I mean, that's what, and CQI is, I mean, if you're not trying something new, then why are you doing CQI? And are you, and if you're trying something new, you're innovating. So, so they, and one of the things that they had evolved through is at first they were talking about data informed decision-making. And it's, it's interesting because you hear how words change as different organizational perspectives come in. So you had data-driven decision-making and then people are like, whoa, do we want the data driving stuff? Maybe maybe it's informing, but we don't. But now I, you even see it shifting to continuous learning where people are like, oh wait, the data isn't the focus, right? It's just an enabler and it's knowledge, it's learning, it's wisdom. There's the focus. I think that these perspectives are really important and continue in a wonderful manner to shift perspective back to what the real goals are here and away from the enablers that can be red herrings for achieving those goals and outcomes. Well, and that's where I think technology has the opportunity to make data more accessible, more inclusive, and elevate transparency. So instead of passing off data to someone who does feel comfortable saying, oh, this is what this means. And so someone else is telling me what that means. I have the opportunity to engage in a different way and to see it for myself, make sense of it and contribute to a discussion around interpreting what this means. And so that it's less likely to be utilized in harmful ways because you have multiple people who are equipped through dashboards, through 
a variety of tools where they can in- engage with the data in a way that makes sense to them, regardless of their background in data analysis. And so I think that's a win for how tech can really take continuous improvement uh, to new levels for nonprofits who have uh, staff members with a variety of skills and backgrounds, and they don't all always have a data-informed lens that feels comfortable for them to lean on. One of the things I love about this is how so many leaders and contributors in the social impact space are asking for and intuitively moving towards very innovative data architecture concepts, right? So you're not a data architect by training or skills or background, and you're saying, listen, we need easier access to the data. We need to be closer to it to inform our, you know, decision-making, but also to correct it where it's incorrect or it has biases or other things. And in the data architecture space, some of the most innovative thinking that we've found that we tend to consider in how we architect systems is from a brilliant woman named Jamag Dajani, and she has this concept of a data mesh. And part of one of like one of the pillars, there's two pillars that are relevant to this. One is a self-serve data platform where people don't need to have extra steps of technologists, you know, getting in the way often, even though the intention is good where the people who are close to the data can access it, can interact with it, can make decisions off of it, can update it. And the other pillar there that's relevant to this part of the discussion is the sense of domain ownership. And you can take that abstract concept and take it down to the you know to the service providers who are doing the work that are close to the data, that they own the data in the sense that they're closest to it and know the meaning of it better than a technologist looking in a data warehouse somewhere. And then you can take that further to your point about equity to the the people that are representing the data. And that should be the ultimate democratized ownership from an ideal perspective there, right? So I love how the CQI direction and vision and philosophies that you're bringing in talking about align very, very well from an agility and ease and flexibility perspective to the latest in modern data architecture thinking. So software design and architecture can be a lot like furniture building or home building, and that a lot of folks can do it, but really quality lasting systems take craftsmanship and patience. That's true for a lot of things. And data mesh is a really super exciting, still fairly new concept that's informing how data architects are building the newest and most innovative data systems, including our own engineers here at Asimio. So Jamak Dajani, if you're listening to this, just know that we're your biggest fans and we would love to have you on the pod. Yeah, with, with what you're saying, it stands out to me that it's a way to disrupt power dynamics If we think about knowledge being power, the more people who have access to knowledge and not knowledge that's been filtered and made sense of by someone who might have different perspectives, different experiences and different motives or interests than they do, it really opens up folks to engage in problem solving in different ways. One of the great lessons for technologists, in my opinion, over the last few decades is around power dynamics and making that shift in thinking around how technology constrains versus enables organizational functions because technologists got you know have become a bit ossified in the system of thinking like oh this tech stack or this you know process or this way of doing things is the way because it was the way yesterday just like anyone gets in their own patterns instead of constantly evolving and innovating so that's a really that's part of the exciting part of of the speed at which technology is shifting today is we're becoming more agile, more flexible, and technologists are shifting their perspective in many instances towards being more of a business enabler. Well, and and that makes me think about, you know, we're we're talking through the value of tech and helping make data more accessible, uh, more usable, more interactive. But I think tech plays out in the continuous improvement process in other ways too. If we think about who's who's able to be a part of the conversation throughout the stage of decision making, you know, we live in a world where not everybody is working in an office and convening in a, in a shared space. Now we have the opportunity to virtually connect with people um, from greater distance or from folks who don't have the ability to travel to go to an in-person meeting, even if it's just across town. So we create more inclusive environments for bringing folks into the process and allowing them to be a part of the conversation and 
So sometimes I feel like tech means these really complicated systems and processes, but sometimes the value of tech comes from, you know, having Zoom features that allow you to both chat and to add questions and comments. It comes from Mentimeter, where you can gauge live where where people are feeling, what's making sense right now, what's not. Has everybody had a chance to contribute? So I just think tech, the, the variety of ways that tech can support continuous improvement to make it more inclusive and more effective, it's just exciting. I want to get a little bit meta and a little practical here and ask you about your experience on, you know, you have been facilitating continuous improvement initiatives for some time and learning about it. And what would your today self tell yourself whenever you first started doing this kind of work on the key lessons learned, you know, beware of X, Y, Z, you know, what have you learned about, <laughs> what have you, you know, been continuously improving on your continuous improvement work? I, I would tell myself, girl, you have a lot to learn. Um, and <laughs> I still do. But uh, things that in hindsight, it's like, oh, if I knew that immediately, I would do things differently. It would be that continuous improvement aligns to equity work, but not unless you intentionally are asking questions throughout the process. So, it needs to be something that's prioritized. And I say that because I, I work in a space where we're using continuous improvement for the purpose of problem solving to ensure that more students and, and families have access to the resources they need to thrive. So from my vantage point, equity is a huge piece and knowing that it's not just gonna fall into place. You need to be asking the questions and, and getting the folks in the room to bring that to life. Another part of the continuous improvement cycle is, and this is obvious, but it just, it just comes up a lot for me. It's a cycle for a reason. It's not the straight line of to-do steps that I do this and then I learn this and then so I can do this and I'll, I'll scale it. No, no, no. The learning part is there because you learn things that make you say like, oh, before I can even focus on this problem, I actually need to do something else. One team was was focused on, hey, their service offerings weren't, be, weren't being utilized across all racial domains of clients that they served. When they disaggregated data, they saw that there was a difference in patterns in who utilized their services. And that was of concern to them. And so they said that that's the problem that we want to understand more. And in part of their root cause analysis, they did a survey um, that had questions about the factors that they think were, were contributing. But they found out when they tried to deliver that survey, they weren't getting survey responses back from the group that they were hoping to make a change alongside. And so they said, wow, before we can even focus on that, we need to figure out what are our feedback cycles and how do we build trusted relationships to get the information we need to be able to resolve this problem. That sounds beautiful, unless you're on the team that's doing the work and they're like, we set aside six months to focus on this particular problem of practice. And now you're, you're telling me we can't even do this thing. We have to focus on this first. And that's the value of continuous improvement. And that's also the frustration of continuous improvement. The whole point is it's not you being clear about what I need to do to solve this solution. It's really about what do I need to learn and understand in order to test out solutions um, to understand if that's going to be the thing that, that the community needs. And again, community sometimes is, is your larger community. Sometimes that's your organization. Sometimes that's your team. Sometimes that's you and your partner. Uh, so I don't mean to say that it always is this broader scale. It's whoever you're looking to make an, an impact for and alongside. And, and I feel like that, again, underscores such an important point that it's not, you know, everyone's always looking for the one problem to solve, the one use case. And it shows up in technology as the one technology system. To impl if we just implement this case management system or Salesforce interest or data warehouse or dashboard then that'll be it. That'll that'll be the thing that'll get us to wherever we're trying to go. But it's not. The process is the answer. And it's so unsatisfying because we want something we can concretely hold on to and that can just be the silver bullet or whatnot. Just tell me the one program I can invest a certain amount of money in that'll solve the problem, the one method I can use. And it's not that. The process is the answer is what I find myself going back to. I agree with that. Another thing that comes to mind, just based on your question, is regardless of the level that you're thinking about using continuous improvement within my own workflow, with my team, with my organization, with cross-sector partners, whatever that level is, you're looking to understand reasons why something is happening that you don't want to be happening, which means you need to ask hard questions 
And you need to be open to understanding I might be part of the problem. It's very likely that I am part of the problem in some way. And so establishing trusting relationships to be able to share that feedback is so vital to the process. And, and, And let me give a more concrete example. When a team comes to the stage of brainstorming the factors that they think might be contributing to the problem, if I'm thinking about, uh, hey, folks aren't engaging in this program, we're trying to understand why, I might say, I think it's the way we market the program. And if the, the comms team is in the room, and I'm not on the comms team, but I really think that's something that could be contributing and that we should explore, there needs to be an environment where I can raise that um, and that the comms team doesn't feel attacked. Or, or vice versa, I, I, I support evaluation in my role. So someone might say, it's the way we're evaluating it that's part of the problem. Can you identify and elevate problems in a way where you're putting everything on the table and not making anybody feel defensive or feeling like they are the source of the problem? Because there's never a single source, it's multiple things. And so being able to invest in those trusting relationships, which sometimes exist going into the process and sometimes have to be built, that is a vital part of the work too. And that's something that I thought I knew, but I know differently now. Boom, drop the mic. Yes, that like vigorous head nods on that. And and for so many things too, right? Having that psychological safety to be able to engage in an authentic conversation um, can't be valued enough, regardless of the situation. And it is that you talked about it as an investment and and it takes time, right? I mean, you can't just work your way through one facilitated day-long workshop to get there. Maybe, maybe <laughs> there's probably some folks out there that sell some things like that. So <laughs> when they think they're doing that, but um, that's a really, really critical point. And, you know, because otherwise, to your point, you wouldn't be getting all the information you need, or now you're battling a lot of emotion and things are getting in the way to actually being able to talk about the the challenge at hand. So when we were talking earlier about you know, when is CQI or continuous improvement maybe not the answer? It, it, when, it's a, there's a readiness question, or is this going to be, you know, successful, success criteria maybe, you know, to consider before you apply something like that. It's very interesting. That, that makes me think of the reality that sometimes folks are eager to engage in the process, but based on the way they currently collect information, Sometimes they're not ready to even be able to say, I know for sure this is a problem at the level that I need to confirm it. It's, an, it's more than a problem than, than just for me. And so I think that that's can be, that can be frustrating for folks who are ready to dig in. Sometimes when they're in that first step with just prioritizing deviations, identifying their problem, they have some pre-work to do there to gather some information and some insights to even be able to be sure about what is or is not a problem or what is the most pressing problem that they're their team wants to resolve. And so I think that can be frustrating too. And as you were talking about, you know, what's a good problem to lean into? Do you have the trusting relationships or do you need that work first? Sometimes there's work just on, do you have the information you need to know that this is a problem? And that's not the stage where people are expecting to have to go out and gather more information. And so that can be off-putting to groups at times. One of the interesting perspectives you can take on CQI is because there's not a preset definition of what continuous means, like where you break the cycle up. Does that mean throughout the day that I run CQI cycles 12 times or or can't, might I run a CQI cycle over a year? Right. Um, Then I think it really creates a lot of space for discussion and debate on where it doesn't, doesn't apply. So I really, I was having a hard time thinking of areas where it doesn't apply. And then Lauren, you very well articulated in the middle of the heat of battle, for example, like at times where you need instincts or you need things that don't, that, that, uh, combat process. There's, I don't remember it exactly. There's this old saying about every plan is great until the first day of the battle. And then it goes out the door, you know, it's like, no, no plans of contact with the end kind of thing. And so that agility, that balance there is important. But one of the areas that's directly related to technology and social good and emerging technology specifically, the saw an example of this kind of thinking is in the rollout of generative AI. And earlier, Jess, you mentioned about like drug trials. And I think that 
Drug trials, probably there's a probably a good debate there to say that there is this, there are CQI cycles involved there and how they test and then release and, you know, moving through the different federal agencies, that there is a, a larger mechanism at play there. Um, but you also, it's not agile in the sense that the first step you do is, you know, print off a drug in your lab and then give it to the general public and say, how did that feel? Right. So there's a mix on process. And, and one of the interesting takes that on strategy that Microsoft formed recently, I was reading about this, is how to safely release such a powerful tool like Gen AI into the world. And they're taking an approach where they're co-collaborating with the world. And this is why, frankly, there's been some big failures. A lot of people with, you know, don't point to Clippy as the best AI example of AI helping out people or, or Tay got a lot of bad press because Microsoft released a chatbot that was immediately attacked by the internet and became super biased and you know said all sorts of vitriolic and horrible things. And so you look at that and go like, wow, what failures? And at the same time, Microsoft is learning how to release and test and get feedback and take that failure and then build something better. Right. So even at the highest levels of potential impact of, of, you know, technology on society, you, you were kind of like spinning up new ways of emergent wisdom through these testing cycles. I'm sure we're getting all sorts of things wrong and hopefully a few things right. But I actually think you're raising a huge part of the environment that needs to exist for continuous improvement to be successful. And that is the willingness to accept that failure is part of a process when you're trying to problem solve and when you're working to disrupt status quo and that the team is able and willing to support each other and failing forward. Um, so some discussions that we have with teams is there's this notion of, okay, that didn't go the way we thought it would, or we didn't live in, up to our expectations with this stage. But it's only failure if you don't take the opportunity to understand, reflect, learn, and do something different based off of that learning. Otherwise, it's learning, it's not failure. And so even the way we classify what's learning versus failure, does failure always have a negative connotation? Are we trying to avoid failure? Because if we're avoiding failure, we're not really trying out new things. And so you're tapping into something I think huge in the continuous improvement space and being able and willing to have room to try out something, test and see how that works to say, no, 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 we don't wanna do that again. But now we know for sure. And now we know a little bit about the context in which that particular intervention or change idea does or doesn't work. Yeah. And I think that mindset is going to be even more important than it already is today. As technology shifts more quickly in emerging technology, the um, stakes get higher. We're going to have to right size mm -hmm. how we fail without catalyzing the worst parts of our society, right? Because there are biases and challenges in, in implementing these technologies. And that's an ongoing ethicist, philosophers, technologists, policy leaders, you know, community members are all struggling with this right now. So it's a very fascinating point of discussion. I was also interested about kind of your emphasis on the word continuous and, and what does that mean? And one thing that um, I'm still trying to learn and support in different ways are sometimes we have these different problems and we're like, this is, you know, I want to focus on program participation. And so that feels very different than I'm just focusing on the number of people who complete my surveys. But again, because the whole point is you learn things that you don't even need, to, that you don't even recognize you need to learn throughout the process. How do you take those key learnings and share them out, capture them and share them out so that you don't have to relearn it another time? Because there are similarities just to our learning, our awareness, our mental models, that comes through and can be connected regardless of the project, regardless of the team. And so the knowledge management of how we capture those key lessons and make sure folks who would benefit from them in a different space in the future have access to it, that's that's still a question mark for me about the best way to do that. And I've seen teams use that differently, but I think that's an area where tech could also um, support how do you house these, these lessons and make sure that they're accessible to folks when you don't know exactly that the instance that that learning will be um, especially relevant in the future. That's something that stands out to me with the continuous part of it. It's funny that you say that because that was another question that I wanted to in, you know, investigate during this conversation is what are the data and technology enablers for knowledge management? And I think that 
that's actually an area where where it's an unsolved problem right now. And it feels like it shouldn't be. It feels like there should be commodified methodologies, processes, systems out there. And it they just kind of fail to meet the mark often. Like I, I don't see, I, I rarely see somewhere where that I'm like, oh wow, there's two things that are really hard when I'm working with community organizations that I rarely see a exemplar. One is knowledge management. Here's how we've got knowledge management incorporated into our practices for continuous learning and, and archival and generalization and, and serving up when you need it. And the other thing is this idea of community participation and also in equity. It's something that we talk about a lot. And I know that when I hear people talk, their hearts are good. We just haven't figured out how to crack the code on these things. So I was hoping you would just be able to give all of the answers, like in an order of priority, right? <laughs> oh, I think that's your next guess. They're, they're, they're in the give waiting room. <laughs> this is a little more of a, a nerdy. I, I used to, in a past life, do problem identification. So I worked for the Cherokee Nation. I, I was tagged to form a problem management team, which was really focused on root cause analysis of more complex problems. And back, this is a few decades ago, but it basically it was kind of like it's some Ishikawa diagram related thing was kind of the go-to tool then. And I feel like that had been that way already for a while. So I'm curious these days, what is, you know, do you have any go-to tools or specific methodologies for root cause analysis that you favor? We have a lot. So we have something called an is, is not table, which is not something that Impact Tulsa uh, created, but it's something that we lean into where that helps you with disaggregating data and helping narrow down the focus where you're literally creating a chart around where is this problem showing up and where is it not to create clarity around that. And that's been a tool. That's a tool about using data that people look at and they're like, oh, that's using data. That feels, I can do this no matter my comfort of level. I, I can do this. So I love that tool for that reason. Lauren is doing a great job here of really highlighting the value of investing in data. And we couldn't agree more. Data can be and is really truly accessible when the systems around it, the systems that collect that data are built with the folks who need access to that information in mind. And if you are curious or want to learn more about how we think about this, you can always check out our website where we have all kinds of resources, case studies, white papers. We've got some ebooks out there to check it out. We also just lean into what are the mechanisms for creating space for people to begin to think through what are problems and avoid groupthink in a negative way. So even creating space for people to individually brainstorm, hey, what what's what's showing up as a problem for you? Then sharing that with their group and building that out from there. Because sometimes if you don't have that individual time to process, you you intentionally or unintentionally can skew somebody else's thinking if you just start with the group sharing level. So there's technical and adaptive tools that we lean into to help with that process. And I think both are necessary in the space to make sure teams really have what they need uh, with identifying a problem in it and then working to resolve that problem. You know, another thing that it's easy to run into is you know, people looking for technology solutions to process problems. For example, I'm just going to implement Basecamp to solve project management instead of having a PMO and thinking through the processes and the organizational strategy and alignment and responsibilities. So where have you seen in relation to CQI, where does it fit within an organization, either from a roles and responsibilities perspective or from a cultural perspective or from an org chart perspective or function perspective? What's your thoughts on that in general? I think there's a lot of variability in how it plays out. In my biased opinion, if you have an organization where you do have someone who is focused on quality improvement, that allows them to build out systems at multiple levels to ensure it's used in the most meaningful way. But you don't have to have someone who's solely designed or focused on continuous improvement in order for it to be embedded in an organizational culture. It's even just, do you take time when a project wraps up do you take time to pause and say what went well and what didn't go well? And what does that mean for what we might want to do a little bit differently next time? So I think that it lives in the mindset of folks and it lives also in the processes. Do we have time for that reflection as we, as I just shared, but do we have the culture where we're interested in improving? Are we always just interested in moving on to the next thing? Are we connecting back to how this fits into our mission? This isn't busy work. This isn't just one more framework to use. It's there to make your work better 
for efficiency and for meeting your outcomes. And so I think it lives in a lot of places, and but ultimately it lives in digesting what are the mechanisms here that help us know what we should do, what we should keep doing because it's working well, and what we need to change because it's not working well. Really, for me, the things that I'm taking away are really centered around the you know ingredients for continuous improvement success. And it, it boils down to three things. It's trust and bravery and intention. And I think when you have those three things, you can do a lot, not just in continuous improvement, but you have to have that space where you can throw out all these ideas and not feel like you're stepping on, you know, other folks' toes and going to upset the the apple cart, you know, or you need to be brave and trying something new. That's kind of the whole point <laughs> to see what happens, to to understand, right? I mean, really, Lauren, I, I want to underscore that. I think that's an important takeaway. It's not about just the doing, but it's about there's the understanding and the learning. And then the intention is, you know, whether it's making sure the the right perspectives are taken into account, that you're intentional with the problem at hand and, and what you're trying to solve. I mean, yeah, so this is this is super great, Lauren. Thank you so much. This is really um you know, there's so many different angles you can take with this, and it's so highly applicable in so many different dimensions of life. So very energizing. And I think for me, one thing that I'm continuously learning myself is that this this feels like a framework, and sometimes it feels so huge, and it's just for these huge problems, but it really can be broken down into, you, you know what, I didn't, when I am evaluating this program, I'm aiming for 85% response rate on surveys and I'm only getting 60% response rate. What can I do and try out differently to just see if that makes a difference so that folks don't feel like continuous improvement is only for the wicked problems. It's for the problems right in front of them that they just need time to step back and try something out. And that's what's beautiful about continuous improvement. It's just the, the way that it can show up in so many spaces and for so many different sized problems. I think it's a tool, it's a game changer for a lot of folks. All right, y'all. Thanks so much for joining us and Lauren today for a great conversation. Again, this is the final episode of this season. We'll be back in store with more, but thanks to everybody who's been listening. It's been a great season and we've had a lot of really interesting conversations. We will be back with more full-length episodes in the new year and we're just looking forward to the next season. We've got a ton of ideas and we're excited to share them with you. 